a very important sporting event happened yesterday. Our ladies' netball team, actually. They played in the semi-final against the world number one's Australians and lost by two points. I mean, we haven't made it in the semi-finals in ages. And uh, FYI, netball is the most registered sport in South Africa, actually. So uh, it, it shows you that you know, there's an imbalance there that uh, we, we should actually pay more attention to them. And then, and then the other thing that happened at 5 o'clock yesterday is, well, at 2 o'clock was the Sharks played and they won, yes. And then the, the Springboks played and they won. So my weekend's been fantastic. If you're Australians, sorry for you. But it's, it's really good to be with you guys. Um, yes, we, we've been in the, in the, in the series of, of looking at Romans, and, and it's just the, the church leadership have been called to, to look at, at, this, at this book or, or letter, if you like, and we're going to continue to look at it for the next little while going on towards the end of the year. And the, and the book of Romans, reason being, is it's, it's actually a letter more than a book that is, is, is written for the Romans and I suppose by extension to all of us, and its central message is that the gospel, which obviously is, is the teaching of Jesus Christ, is the power of God for salvation for those who believe in him. And that's what we've been immersed ourselves in. That's what we've been looking at. And, and it's been really great. So I like doing this. I like recapping so that, you know, we have a bit of calibration so that we're all in the same wavelength, so to speak. So if you give me three minutes to do that, week one, so Gary uh, preached for us in week one, and he, he's... Launchpad was that ideas shape society as truth, but God's truth shapes a prosperous future. Boom, go home, service closed. That was his thing. But essentially what he was saying was that wherever you look chronologically in history, there was some kind of idea that was manifested, and then people made that idea truth, whether it was socialism or communism, uh, you know, capitalism, which is at the moment, uh, dictatorships, uh, democracy, all of those are some, in some other form, an idea that was entrenched in society that was believed to be truth, and some have lost it more than others. And what Gary was saying is while there's vol volatility in those truths, the one truth that we cannot ever dismiss is God's truth for us in, in the word. And he launched us with this bitter, bitter truth that no matter how sorry it is, that no one is righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. But he says, now that that law is all gone in the Bible, to which law the, of the prophets testify, the righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So that was essentially what week one was about. And then we moved on, and Ross, Roger, Ross preached on the idea of don't give up. Don't give up and trust in the process. And essentially what we were saying here is that it's funny how we all think and we all know that some things do have processes. So if, a, if you've got a little baby, you know that the baby's going to cry and then crawl and then walk and then run and eventually they go grow up. So there's a process in life that, that takes place. And everything in, that requires growth requires process. But when we you come to our faith, we often think that faith has a formula that requires immediateness or instantaneous. 
And sometimes it, it, it happens in life that we think many aspects of our life don't require process. So you look at the, the New Year resolutionists, for example, who go, okay, January 8th, back from holiday, salads, no desserts, too much dessert from home, and gym, and they go into the gym, and then two weeks later, in the mirror, so whoopsie, not happening. So give up. So the idea is that no, our faith is no different to what life brings us anyway, that everything requires a process, that even our faith, when it grows, is a process towards it. So don't give up and trust in that process. And, and then in the following weeks to come, Gary was back up here and he gave us what we called a theological whiplash. These were his words. He's actually went, so I'm actually, uh, what do they call that thing when you steal people's uh, plagiarism? Yeah, I'm plagiarizing Gaza here. But, but essentially what he was saying was that through the redemptive work of Christ, we are free to rejoice in him and praise him because there's peace in finding him who loves us. But it also says that we must rejoice in all the problems and trials. And that's where the theological whiplash takes place. How do we rejoice in both the good times and in the bad times? That, you know, it's a difficult place, but I think that's where faith is really tested, and that's where the discipline of, of life really happens. That discipline requires us to rejoice when times are good and when times are bad. So that's where we are. So call it first chakra done. We move forward. So we're going to take a breather. I'm not going to detach too much from what has been said, but we're not going to look at it from the context of, of uh, Romans. I, I want to talk to you about faith. And not just faith in the most generic sense, but your faith and my faith. And really the question that I want to ask is, do you believe your faith matters? Do you think that it can change the course of society? Do I believe that my faith matters? I must be vulnerable for a second. There's, there's times, you know, as a church, we've got a mission that we want to impact society and, and society at large. We know when we pray, we pray to impact the city positively, not just you as a community, but the city at large. We want to be known as, as a people and as a church that goes out there and has a positive impact in society. But then I, I often think, geez, the, the problems of society to me look so institutionalized and so embedded into society that I don't know if my faith or even my prayers can actually make a difference. I mean, I look at, at some of our hospitals, for example, and the stories you hear from these hospitals are, are shocking and in many instances quite disgusting. The, that, that some people don't have a means to, the, to healthcare, but when they do find the healthcare, the level of healthcare that they have leaves you very, very sad. Or I look at, at education as an example, that some kids are still learning under trees. Some kids in their schools don't have uh, toilets, toilet facilities. There's been stories uh, last year of, of kids uh, falling into long drops and dying. There's a story about a school or a community in Limpopo, for example, where the, the community has been protesting to the government for roads, for tarred roads. So what they did is they burnt the school in the community. 
So their education is hindered. Crime is, is probably rife in, in most societies. I mean, I, I find that the more I look into the problems of our country, the more I realize that the value of life is no longer as appreciated as it used to be. So when I look at all of this, I mean, people are dying for cell phones. That's it. Like People are coming for the phone, but they stab you and they kill you and they take your phone. So I, I go through this stuff, and, and then when we stand up and we pray, and we go, oh, Father, for, for this, we pray for the city that we can be a community that changes. I sometimes have a problem with it. Am I the only one that has a problem with that? I've got a problem with it. Have, raise your hand if, you, if you're with me in, in many instances. Whew, okay, that was close. I thought I was <laughs> the only one that raised my hand. So... What does the Bible have to say to us about this? Because clearly it is. It's an issue. Doubt is something that almost goes hand in hand with our, with our faith. Questioning if we can have a positive impact in our society goes hand in hand in our faith. So we're going to look into the Bible for some answers. We're going to turn to Luke 5, 17 to 25. And here's some context. So News about Jesus has spread all over the place, and people want to come see him. They want to hear what he has to say. They want to be touched by him. They want to hear his teachings. And in many instances, they just want to judge him. They just want to poke at his, at his word. So he's teaching in a house in the village, and there's a crowd gathered there, and there's just masses amount of people who have opinion, who've got needs, who've got desires. The Pharisees are also there, so you can imagine that the level of judgment is also very high in that context. So Luke 5, 17, 25 says, one day Jesus was teaching, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there, and there's the setup. They had come from every village of Galilee, from Judea to Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men carrying a paralyzed man on a matter, tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to think to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy, who can forgive sins, but who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went on praising God. It's an amazing story of faith, this. And why it's an amazing story of faith? Because it's not the faith that is centered around the paralyzed man, but the faith that is centered around by those around him. See, those, those friends of theirs, we don't know how this man became paralyzed. Not much is said of that. But where we pick up the story is that these guys saw their friend lying on a mat, and they said, we believe you are more than what you are currently. We believe that. And we're going to take the opportunity to take you from what is carrying you and bring you in front of Jesus Christ. So they carried the man. 
Now, if you, if you know a little bit of context and history of, of this society and this region, it's dry and it's rocky, and these guys have to carry a man. It doesn't say how much the man weighs. We don't know. He could be 50 kgs like Gary. He could be 100 kgs like me. It doesn't matter. But they have to carry this man. They have to carry him to Jesus. And they do that in the sun. They go by faith. We're going to where we're going. And they get there, boom, in front of this house. But there's a crowd, so there's no way to get in. Now they're faced with multiple options. A, do they go, brother, sorry, we tried. We did the best we can. It's too busy. Let's go home. Maybe some other time. Maybe this wasn't your day. Or the other option, they go, whatever it takes. We have an opportunity to be in front of Jesus Christ, and we're going to do it, whatever it takes. I don't know what that man would say, but you can imagine, like, there was so much judgment in those days about people who were sickly. They usually used to outcast you. So I would imagine a guy that's lying on bed is probably going, don't embarrass me. Don't shame me and take me through the crowd. Don't put me and broadcast me out there. But through the faith of friends who saw potential, they went whatever it takes. So they went up and they lowered the man in front of Jesus from a roof. And this is where the beautiful part says, it says, when Jesus saw, not his faith, when Jesus saw their faith, When Jesus saw what was in them, he said, son, you can get up. Your sins are forgiven. Friend, your your sins are forgiven. And here's here's what's amazing about what Jesus does is when we take our our needs to him, when we take what is bothering us, as you see in the scripture, he continuously exceeds our expectations. So you go there and you go, he, this, 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 this man and his friends say, this man is sick, and Jesus goes, your sins are forgiven. But I didn't come here for my sins. I came here because I was sick. But Jesus does so much more, so much more than we could ever expect. And he says to this man, your sins are forgiven. I love the story because it speaks about a group of friends that fixed their focus, not caring what other people would say, but were determined to get themselves in front of Jesus Christ. I often, I often say this sometimes, I think this to myself sometimes, that we are so close to experiencing Jesus as people, but are so concerned with what people might say. You know, when you, when you take up a lot of space, like, like myself, you, you tend to, to stand up or stand out in the crowd. And sometimes you, you, might, you could be a tear away from experiencing the love of Jesus Christ, but so concerned about what will people say about such a big guy crying. But you're that close to experiencing his love. And your concern and your focus is what's around you, not who's calling you to be with him. So the friend's faith mattered here. Their friend, the friend's faith mattered in this place. Here's another story that I think is a perfect example of why faith matters and why our faith matters. It's the story 
of a woman. And, and, and there's so much that happens. There's so much that, that needs to be debunked here so that we don't miss it. So I'm going to dive straight into it. It's the story of, uh, that, that, that is found. Let me find my place quickly. Oh. Gary says he doesn't speak from technology, and I understand why now. It's because I miss my place. Luke 8, 43 to verse 48. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him. They were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out of me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling at his, and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. So you have this, this man, Jarius, who's a synagogue leader. So again, the, the, the context here is you've got to remember that synagogue leaders were often outraged at what Jesus was doing at that time. They really didn't appreciate it, especially because a lot of the times he did healings on the Sabbath, and the Sabbath was supposed to be a day that is holy and rule-keeping, that you weren't allowed to do any kind of work. So the relationship between synagogue rulers and, and the Pharisees and so on with Jesus was non-existent virtually. But here's this guy who's a synagogue leader, and by the virtue of the fact that he's a synagogue leader, it makes him important. It makes him a VIP. So he comes frontward, and he approaches Jesus Christ from the front. And naturally what happens when people of importance come and approach somebody, a, a path is cleared. So people clear the path and they go in front and there's Jesus and there's Jairus and this man who should have no relationship with Jesus Christ falls at Jesus' feet and says, come to my house, I need your help. My daughter's sick and dying. She's 12 years old. I need your help. So Jesus is about to move forward. But behind them, there's a woman who has been subject to bleeding for 12 years. The Bible says that this lady had spent all her money on physicians, and instead of getting better, no one could help her. In fact, they made her progressively worse. Furthermore, what the Bible teaches us, about, especially in the Old Testament, it says that it speaks specifically to what she was going through, that if a woman continues to bleed longer than she's supposed to, she is unclean. And when, when you're unclean, you're cast out. You're an outcast. You're not even allowed to be in the temples. So this woman is unclean. She's seen now as the scum of the earth. She's not allowed to be touched by anybody. So she's sitting on the floor. She's lying on the floor. She feels that this is her opportunity to meet with Jesus Christ and get healed. So she comes from behind she fixes her focus. 
And I can only imagine, I mean, you can imagine what's happening there right now. There's a crowd. There's a guy whose path has been clear, and there's a woman who has to make her way through the crowd while she's crawling on the floor towards Jesus Christ. And remember, she's got continuous pleading, so she's unclean anyway. So you can imagine what's happening there. The crowd probably going, you, get away from us. But she fixes her eyes on Jesus Christ. She says, if I can just, if I can just touch the corner of his, if I could just get there, I know I will be healed. So she makes her way. She crawls, she crawls, she crawls, and she touches Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is moved. He goes, who touched me? And his disciples go, are you mad? Are you kidding me? Look around you. And he goes, no, no, no. Who touched me? I felt something there. A felt power move out of me. And it's a story of our faith being able to move Jesus Christ through our desperation. That if we fix our focus on him, if we continuously to fix our focus on him and blur whatever's around us, we can move Jesus Christ to move the mountains that are around us. And here's, here's what's the most beautiful thing is here about this story. Jesus stops. And what society was supposed to tell him is that the important man was supposed to be the first person to get attention. He stops, he turns around and says to this lady, daughter, your, your, your sins, of your, you are healed by your faith. So not only is he just doing a healing, but Jesus was breaking the social constructs of that time. That everybody was equal before his eyes. It didn't matter what robe you were wearing and what title you had, whether you crawled to me or you walked in front of me. I was going to address you. So he does that, turns around, and speaks to the, people, the person that he needed to address at that time. I love it because in Parliament, you often hear our politician go, Ah, oh, Julius, you are ungovernable. <laughs> and I can imagine the Pharisees felt the same way about Jesus Christ. Jesus was ungovernable. He knew no law. He did what his assignment was and what he was called to do on this earth. So what does it tell us about our faith and our ability to move stuff? Well, here's, here's the thing. We can take our desires and our needs to Jesus Christ. That's, that requires a great deal of faith. But we can expect an, the impossible to happen. We can, we can take all our desires and all our needs and present them in front of God and expect the impossible to happen. But here's the trick. Our faith cannot be based or hinged on the outcome. Steve Furtick says this. He says it cannot be a hostage to the outcome. Because if our faith is hostage to the outcome, we might end up very bitterly disappointed. I don't know about you, but I've had faith about a lot of things that took time to come right. It took a great deal of time to come right. There's been times where I've had faith for healing and prayed into somebody's life 
But that healing never took place and people pass away. So what is faith then? Is faith about the outcome? No. Faith is our outlook. It's a perspective of our lives. We have to consider, we have to consider our faith muscle and strengthening it through the process and not hinge it on the result. Because the result's gonna come. But our faith is gonna require us to trust the process. So what do we do then? Do we do, we do nothing? Or do we go, go to God and expect that nothing is really going to happen? Th- that's a problem. Or what about going to God expecting that my will will happen? It's going to lead to a lot of heartache. What if we go to God with our needs and our desires and expect that His will is going to happen and His will is going to exceed us more than we'll ever know? That's where he meets us. We go to Jesus Christ because our faith is in the process. Our faith, for example, is found in Romans 8, 38 to 39. He's a magnificent God who loves us so, so much. But take courage, take courage that his process is in the waiting that he'll never leave you or forsake you. I want to leave you with this one thought. This one thought that you must never ever forget. It goes like this. He loves you so much and he will never ever forsake you. Your faith is your relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. So go out there. Be strong. Fix your faith muscle. So Jesus Christ, I pray, I pray for this community. Pray for our church, Lord Jesus, that we may never forget that nothing will separate us from your love, Lord Jesus Christ. And that our faith can move mountains, Lord Jesus. Our faith can shape society, Lord God, can change the things that we want to see. So we will bring our desires to you, but we will know that anything, anything, anything is impossible when we present ourselves to you. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.